Let's do a weird sermon. Colossians chapter 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Slaves, obey your masters on earth in everything. Don't just obey like people pleasers when they are watching. Instead, obey them with single motivation, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart for the Lord and not for people. You know that you will receive an inheritance as a reward. You serve the Lord Christ, but evildoers will receive their reward for their evil actions. There is no discrimination. And masters, be just and fair to your slaves, knowing that you yourselves have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So right away, you have to say when you read a text like this, that in the mind of an American... When we see the word slave and when we see the word master, we filter it through our knowledge of how slavery was practiced in this country. And that I think when we do that, it makes it very difficult for us to see how Paul could possibly say what he says here. All righty. Who's with me already? So... Part of the reason I'm not going to skate over these verses, but rather talk about them, is because I think that by placing them in their historical context, I can remove some of the offense that comes from these passages. Many parts of the Bible, when they land on modern people, because the Bible is an ancient text and a foreign text, it is doubly foreign to us. And so when people hear these texts, they think, this is going backwards morally. We have arrived at a very morally superior state with regard to the institution of slavery. If we are going to treat this Bible as though it's God's word, how can we if it's asking us to go backwards morally? Who's tracking with what I'm saying? And even if that's not your offense, I guarantee you morally sensitive people who are outside the faith will find passages like this a good reason to throw away the Bible. Are you with me? Okay, so I have like seven little subheadings here. Point one, slavery in the ancient world was universally practiced. There is no ancient culture that didn't practice slavery. Slavery was universally practiced and accepted in the ancient world right up until the 1800s. In every culture and society. Slavery was practiced and affirmed. In fact, no one could possibly envision a world without slavery in the ancient world. Even slaves didn't want to abolish the institution of slavery. They just didn't want to be slaves themselves. The average time spent in ancient world slavery was 10 years. It's not so much like what we think of as slavery from how it happened in the colonies and the United States. Rather, it's more like what we would think of as indentured servitude. You would get into financial trouble or you would be displaced or you would be a foreigner and you would have nothing to do to eat food and not die. And you would say, I'm in trouble. What do I do? Ah, slavery would be an option to not starve. Andrew Lincoln said that nobody in the ancient world even thought of the idea of abolishing the institution of slavery because of this. John Stuart Mill and his... uh, um, in his sort of observations about history, said that at one time, every civilized people, every single culture, every single nation, every single group, every ethnic group, at one point in their history, 
they had spent time as slaves in the majority, majority of them. Did you know that, by the way? That the word slave comes from the word Slav, like Yugoslavia, the Slavic peoples were oftentimes uh, held as slaves. So it had nothing to do with race in the ancient world. Thomas More's 16th century vision of utopia, his vision of utopia, the ideal world, he included slavery in his book, in his ideal vision. That's how foreign it was to ancient peoples, the idea that we could do away with this, with this thing. And slaves in the ancient world were often very educated. They were like PhDs, often. They took significant civic duties and roles. Uh, doctors, professors, civil servants. So again, ancient world slavery, not at all how it was practiced in the United States and the colonies. Typically, slaves could buy their freedom when they paid off their debts, and they also had the option of choosing to commit themselves to their family that they were, that they were working for, they belonged to, full-time. Now you go, why in the world would anyone ever choose to do that? Well, some would choose to do that. Some would say, you know what, I really love my master and I love this family, and it's better to work for him as a servant in his household than it is to be disconnected from him and on my own. That's a foreign concept to us, again, because we're looking at slavery through modern lenses. So that was point number one, how slavery in the ancient world was universally practiced and accepted right up until the 1800s. Number two, American slavery was a totally different sort of beast. The African slave trade was not at all voluntary. A lot of ancient world slavery was you voluntarily entered into it because you felt you had no other option. Not all, but a lot. The average, average time in ancient world slavery was 10 years. Did, you, did I already say that? You could buy yourself out. And the average time spent in was 10 years. Not so with American slavery. American slavery was usually meant to be lifelong. It was not voluntary. It was rooted in dogma about white superiority and black inferiority. The world had never seen this before, this kind of slavery, this kind of racist-based slavery. And usually American slavery highly restricted education for slaves and marriage freedoms. Slaves were bred, not simply allowed to be free citizens. They also were unable to vote, oftentimes restricted from owning land. They were not given freedom, basically, is the, is the point here. American slavery is a unique beast in the history of the institution of slavery. Please don't hear me defending slavery as some good thing, by the way. I'm just trying to put our understanding of why did Paul and why did Jesus not say we should free all slaves uh, in their context. Again, no one, no civilization had that idea until Christians had that idea in the 1800s. So let's now point three. Am I going too fast? No. Point three. Let's track the trajectory of how the Bible treats the topic of slavery through the pages of Scripture. Let's track whether there is a trajectory. Do you know what I mean by a trajectory? Like some moral issues, the Bible is against the grain of, our, of, of the culture at the time and the culture uh, of the Old Testament, culture of the New Testament, non-Christians. And then sometimes the Bible is against the grain of our culture too. And if you look at, at, the, at the trajectory, it, it almost leads somewhere, Right? For example, how does the Bible treat women in the Old Testament relative to the surrounding cultures? Significantly better. How does Jesus treat women relative to the culture? Even better than the Old Testament. How does the gospel treat women 
as, the, as what Jesus did is being applied. Way better than the surrounding cultures. So there's a trajectory within Scripture that points the way toward what I would call different but equal. Slaves, a similar thing. Let's track it through the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, how are slaves treated? Again, every single culture at the time has slavery. But how does God require the Israelites to treat slaves? Much, much better. Significant mistreatment is curbed relative to surrounding culture. And then there's this thing called the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, where the land goes back, the debts are canceled, the slaves are freed, and then every seven years, all Jews who had become slaves to their neighbors are set free every seven years. I don't know if they practiced it, guys, but God's intention was that they practice it. That's a new idea. Then let's track it in the New Testament. Passages like this one in Colossians and a similar one, almost identical in Ephesians, call on slaves and masters to not relate primarily to each other, but to relate to Jesus in the midst of the institution. So that gives them much more increased dignity because they are called brothers. I don't know if you'll notice that. That's, that's a major shift, saying you guys are brothers and you both are going to give an account to Jesus. That modifies the institution significantly. Then you have a little book called Philemon. You ever read this book? Where Paul writes a letter to Philemon because a runaway slave named Onesimus has met Jesus and had a total 180. He's a completely transformed person. So Paul writes to Philemon and he says, he's a runaway slave and I know you're going to think that you're angry at him and betrayed by him and you're going to want to punish him and the law might give you the right to beat him severely, but I want you to treat him as a brother in Christ and I would like you, he's very useful to me, that's a pun on his name, Onesimus means useful, He's very useful to me, and I would like you to send him back to me so he can continue to be useful to me. Translation, Paul's saying, oh, and by the way, Paul says, you owe me your soul. You met Jesus through my talking about Jesus. You wouldn't know, you'd be headed to hell without me, so I'd like you to treat him a certain way. Namely, I'd like you to do the right thing. I'd like you to set him free. Interesting. So Philemon, Onesimus is your brother. You should set him free. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, hey, whatever state you're in when you meet Jesus, why don't you stay there and just glorify Jesus? But by the way, if you happen to be a slave, it's okay if you can't get free. You can glorify Jesus by living for him and letting your light shine. But then Paul says this, if you can get free, do it. Notice that. If you can get free, 1 Corinthians 7, do it. And if you are free, don't go into slavery. You might get into financial trouble. Paul says that you might think this is an option. Jesus made you for freedom. If you can get free, get free. Who's with me so far? Jesus wants you free. Then you come along a verse like Galatians 3.28 that says, In Christ, there's neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Talk about a radical elevation. Because slavery, again, in the ancient world didn't have anything to do with race. It didn't have to do with color. It didn't have to do with culture. You know what it had to do with? It had to do with class. It had to do with how much dignity and power you held within the culture, within the society. And, and Paul says the gospel removes the, pr the, proud of the, the pride of the proud and removes the shame of the low. 
and it puts us all on equal ground. Everyone is one in Christ Jesus. This is countercultural stuff. But again, the gospel, Paul's not thinking the gospel is meant for us to take up swords and create a revolution and fix the world. That's not what's not his plan. His plan is the gospel frees us from our sins so that we become a different sort of people in the world. Okay. So overall biblical trajectory from the Old Testament to the New Testament pointing now to the new heavens and new earth. You know there ain't going to be no slavery in the new heavens and the new earth. And so there's a trajectory, even though you find passages like this in Ephesians and Colossians saying, masters, treat your slaves this way. Slaves, treat your masters this way. And, and even though Christians throughout all of history supported slavery on the basis of these passages, that doesn't mean that that is the best reading of the passages. Because again, remember last time, no, it was two times ago, when I talked about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, and that the Jesus way to read the Bible is the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, which is why he was constantly accused of breaking the law because he was fulfilling the heart of the law. Meanwhile, the Pharisees who think they're speaking for God are actually big butt-headed jerks who are mean and evil, constantly quoting the Bible and being a problem. Who's with me? Everyone, I'm looking around, you all are tired. You can see it. And Jesus is violating their understanding of, the, of Scripture because he's interpreting it very differently than they, were, than they grew up interpreting it. And they think he's breaking the law. You think he's breaking God's commands because he's fulfilling the spirit of the commands. I found this a lot, actually, among us. That a lot of us, even, even little simple things like where Jesus says, you have heard that it is said... But I say to you, and then people go, oh, he's disagreeing with the Old Testament. No, he's fulfilling the intention of the Old Testament command. You know, He's actually revealing the heart behind the command. In fact, he didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. But we still read it like, he's, like, he's, like we read it like Pharisees, is what I'm saying. Okay. The obvious trajectory to me on the issue of slavery is to, is to get rid of the institution. But again, the gospel's not intended to be a revolutionary thing that destroys culture and creates chaos and overturns governments. That's not the point of it. The point of it is to displace people from the kingdom of Satan so that they belong to the kingdom of Jesus. Okay. Christian history. Point four. Based on the letter of the law readings of these passages, for 1,800 years, Christians everywhere justified the practice of slavery because here's the verses. They're right there. How can anyone say we should get rid of the slave thing? It's right there. It's right there. Husbands are the head. Wives submit. Children obey parents. Slaves obey masters. Masters, remember, you have a master in heaven. It's right there. How can you... How can you deny that it's there? Mm. The abolitionists in the 1800s were people who, usually great movements of revival. You know this, right? It's the most Holy Spirit-filled people who were not premillennialists, but were postmillennialists. That's a big word for you kids later. 
who believed that Jesus was already reigning as Lord. Yeah. I used to think post-millennialists were all like heretics or something. But then I figured out charismatic post-millennialists were the ones that did the most to transform society. They said, it's our job, it's our job to apply the lordship of Jesus to society now. They said, it's our job to actually make, make earth ready for Jesus to return and reign. They said, it's our job to make earth look like heaven. So they went after the abuses from alcoholism. Now they became teetotalers, which Paul and Jesus never were, but their heart was in the right place. And it kind of backfired. I don't know if you know that it backfired. It kind of, <laughs> kind of backfired. But these same Christians who were filled with the Spirit, who were consumed with a revivalistic fervor to see the glory of Jesus cover the earth, who had had these encounters with God and became empowered by the Spirit, these were the ones who, by the way, empowered women for ministry. These were the ones who, who, who lobbied in England and in the United States to see the institution of slavery ended. Let me just see, be as clear as I possibly can. It was Christianity and Christianity alone that ended the institution of slavery in Europe and in America, and then went to work trying to stop the slave trade at the source by fighting against the ships that were bringing the slaves. It was Christianity. It was Christianity. And you go, oh yeah, but Christians were the bad guys. Yeah, I, the whole world did this. Did you remember me saying that? Every culture did this. And in the medieval time, Buddhist monasteries and Christian monasteries had, had slaves. That's how just accepted this was. But it was Christians full of the spirit and full of a vision of the, of the earth pre being prepared for Jesus to come down. Their goal was not, okay, because here's different end times theology. One end times theology says efforts to help heal the world are in vain because the earth is a sinking ship with a bunch of rats and mud and, and mold. And the best bet is to just wait, why, you know, why mop floors on a sinking ship? That's their view. You know, why mop floors on a sinking ship? It's getting worse, it's gonna keep getting worse, there's no point, there's no hope, let's just hole up, let's just hole up in, uh, in the church and let's just hope he comes back on Thursday because it's probably gonna get real bad. And then you have these Christians who didn't believe that at all. They believe that it was our assignment to make the earth ready for his arrival. They believed, like I believe, that Ephesians says he'll return for a bride that is spotless, that, that, that through the, the gifts and through the maturity of the leaders, Ephesians 4 talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers that are training this, the rest of the flock for the real works of service. In other words, the non-leaders are the front lines. The leaders are not the front lines. Y'all are the front lines. For, the, for training regular believers for works of service so that we all might do our part, that the body of Christ might be built up and become mature no longer being tossed to and fro by the cunning and craftiness of scheming people and whatever wind of whatever's happening, freaking out. No, no, no. And we, we must be brought to maturity. We must be brought to maturity. I remember one day I was, I was in despair and the Lord said, do you believe this verse? I said, what do you mean? He's like, do you believe this will happen? That I will bring the body of Christ to full maturity, to the full measure of Christ and, and suddenly it landed on me. This has to happen before Jesus returns. This has to happen before Jesus returns. That actually he's returning for a victorious bride that is walking in the fullness of love and knows who she is and whose she is. 
It's a very different thing than the idea of we're hiding in the corner waiting for Jesus to come snatch us away from planet Earth so that it can then get really bad and he can go back to Old Testament mode for a while. Because that's exactly what a lot of Christians believe. They believe that we're in a temporary window of grace in between an Old Testament time of law and another before the end time of law. But these Christians that abolished slavery, they were spirit-filled believers who thought their mission and their mandate was to lead people to Jesus and transform every area of life to look like God intended. Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? And they knew, they knew that you can never transform a society without transforming the heart of individuals. They knew that you don't try to take over society by force and by political scheme and by law and then end up with unredeemed, wicked, selfish, ignorant people. You can't, it doesn't work. The only way to transform a society is to have transformed people. Right? It'd be like you can outlaw racism. Sorry, other way around. You can outlaw slavery, but unless you chant, transform the heart of the racist to see, the, to see the other person as their brother, who is their equal, who has value and dignity and worth and is worth the blood of Jesus and is precious and important and is God's child. Unless you transform the heart of the racist, you can get rid of the slavery, but the stain of sin is still in the, in the population. And so, so like, the, 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 there's a reason why the revivalists, the spirit-filled revivalists, they, they had seen God change their life. So they knew, if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. They knew, I, I was a drunk, now I'm a preacher. I was, a, I was greedy, now I give, now it's my greatest joy to see, to give. Giving is more fun than getting, I, you know? Okay. I just want to say, it. it was Christians. It was because of the gospel that the institution was finally overturned. And it didn't go away without a fight. Yeah. Okay. You guys are doing good. Doing good. Point five, contemporary applications of the attitude that Paul's pushing for in the text. The attitude he wants us to have. In the, it, look, listen, if a, if a really painful, unjust institution like slavery wouldn't keep a Christian, wouldn't, wouldn't, Paul wouldn't say, He's a jerk. Just, just phone it in. You ain't getting paid enough to do good work. Instead, Paul says the opposite to the slave. Serve with all your heart as though not working for your master, as though working for Jesus. Surely, if, if he could say that to a slave, he would say that to me at my job. He would say that to Pete at his job. You see what I'm saying? Surely he would say that to kids toward their parents, even when their parents aren't being fair. And surely, if he can say to masters, hey, 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 you're going to give an account to Jesus for how you treat the people under your authority, surely he would say that to parents and employers and leaders of all kinds. The attitude of excellence and hard work, integrity, like actually paying the taxes you owe, not phoning it in, not cutting corners, not slacking off, not getting away with what you can. In other words, not selfishness and sin, not living for the approval of people, but actually living before the Lord Jesus with integrity. It matters so much. Not doing shoddy work. Not having a bad attitude. These are the things of devotion. These are the things of revival, you guys. Not how it goes in services on Sundays. Yeah. Like kids go to weekend conferences and cry. I remember I was at a youth conference and it was an amazing thing. And he was talking about the mark of true revivals, not just when the kids were at the front crying and praying and saying, send me, I'll go into missions and I'll do all this. 
The mark of true revival is when they get home with a good attitude, they wash the dishes without being asked. That's the mark of true revival. The mark of true revival is not when, when Ray and us and the band are, are knocking, it, knocking heaven loose on a Sunday morning and we all cry. That's not the mark of revival. The mark of revival is on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday and Saturday when no one's looking. We live with excellence. We live as unto the Lord. We're pursuing him with integrity and secret when no one's watching. That, that to do things in Jesus, and, and we love, we love singing to the Lord. We love when his presence comes on Sundays. But you know what's going to bring his presence even stronger than praying for Sunday to be anointed? Seeking him all week long. That's right. When you get 100 people who've been spending all week long living unto the Lord with integrity, integrity. when you get 100 people who's, who, who's, who when we sing, he actually believes us, you get 100 people in a room like that, shoot, you don't even need 100. You get 15. You get, that's right. The earth would tremble. And it's not, again, it's not because we prayed for the service. It's because we lived reverent obedience to him in secret from the heart. Surrender. Prayers mean nothing. Surrender means everything. And so Paul's here saying, look, slavery can't stop the gospel. It might be an opportunity for the gospel to spread if you do it right. A stupid boss that's mean to you and treats you like garbage and overlooks and makes you do the hard jobs and is selfish and just rude, doesn't care about your feelings. That's not going to stop the gospel. It might be the opportunity for the gospel if you serve Jesus correctly in it and you bear good fruit and you're rooted in Christ and you know who you are. The others might give you grief for doing hard work, harder work than them for the same wage. And why are you making us all look bad? Something powerful happens, man. Something powerful happens. I'm going to conclude here. Just a point about the Bible in general. Sometimes the passages that are the most offensive to us, sometimes the passages that we're like, why, is that? why does the Bible have to say that? And we want to skate over them or move around them. They might be the passages. They might be. They might be you might be surprised what gospel. There's passages in the Bible that, are irritating and offensive and they, they make questions happen and they raise doubts. Make friends with your doubts, guys. Don't be like my silly professor who would run away when, his, when he was a Christian in college and his professor would, would make fun of him and point out the contradictions and flaws and problems with Christianity. He would literally get up and run out of the classroom and run back to his dorm and sit in his closet and beg the Holy Spirit for help because he was terrified of the things his professor was saying because he couldn't find it. He didn't have an answer for the intellectual challenges. Don't be like that. Lean into the doubt. Lean into your doubt. Doubt is not unbelief. Doubt is, doubt is good. Unbelief is bad. Doubt is like hunger. Hunger's not bad. Starvation is bad. But hunger is good if it leads you to food. And doubt is your soul's way of saying, I need more information, please. I need more truth. I need a better understanding of God and the world and the Bible. When you start as a little kid, we tell you a version of the faith that's very simple. It's still true, it's reliable, but it's oversimplified on purpose to be understandable. But when you grow up, you encounter the world as being more complicated than that very childish version of the faith can handle. And when your view of the world is more complex than your faith, at those points of intersection, doubt will occur in you. 
Again, don't close your ears. Don't justify what you think you know. Open your heart to the idea that Jesus is still Lord, but I don't understand how this works yet. There's people nowadays, they'll throw away the whole gospel because of, their, because of how they feel on a moral topic. Instead of pressing into the pain and saying, Lord, I want understanding. Show me. And, and it doesn't help that over here is this whole Christian movement that's got Sunday school level of, of theology, five, suitable for a seven-year-old. And they think you have to, then people feel they have to choose between going backwards morally, going backwards scientifically, in order to keep faith, or throw the faith away. And I'm just saying, like this was just a little passage, but doesn't it make a big difference to know to put it in its historical context? It does for me. Oh, how many points did I say we have? Oh, I changed my mind. I have five. Point one, slavery was universally practiced and accepted in the ancient world until the 18th century, and no one thought of ever overturning it until Christians. Number two, American slavery was a different sort of beast based in... Three, the spirit of the law trajectory... I'm sorry, the spirit of, yeah, the spirit of the law trajectory of the Bible regarding slavery, as far as I can read it, is toward the abolition of the institution itself. Um, point four, Christian history. We have often used a letter of the law approach to justify it, but the spirit of the law approach and the heart of the Old Testament and New Testament and the, and the meat in the gospel is toward equality and freedom. And then I have, yeah, five. I was wrong. I said seven. Oh, that's why, because I edited my notes right before church. That's good. And number five, contemporary applications of the attitude. Work hard for Jesus, not your boss. Serve him in secret. This is the true heart of integrity. He's not, he's not after religion, is he? He wants your heart. He wants your heart. <laughs>